systems issues kill people. They kill people. And ultimately, the purpose of smoothing, the purpose of dealing with crowding, of early discharge, of all this sort of stuff. It's great for the surgeons. It's great for the financial health. It's great for the staff. But we have this not, not unsurprising finding out there that if you're having an emergency and your care is delayed, you don't do as well. Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about hospital capacity, how hospitals have coped with the COVID-19 pandemic, and what we can expect as volumes return and institutions work through the backlog of surgical cases. I'm Erin Kane. I'm an emergency physician and editor of the Urgent Matters Hustle and Flow section, and I'm joined today by three guests. Our first guest, Eugene Litvak, has spent his career working on the problem of patient flow and boarding, crowding, and applying queuing theory. He's CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Optimization. We're also joined by Peter Vicellio, who's an emergency physician and professor of emergency medicine at Stony Brook. And our third guest is Hallie Cruel. She's manager of the Patient Logistics Center at the George Washington University Hospital. Let's start off by just talking about, you know, early pandemic, mid-pandemic. Um, what did that look like in different places? I mean, Peter, you're obviously in New York, so you have a perspective on that. Um, I think that, that none of us, at least with me and DC, we didn't go through what you went through in New York. Were we successful in flattening the curve anywhere? We certainly were successful in flattening the curve. With the first wave of COVID, we had about 6,000 COVID patients, most of whom we saw in the emergency department and sent them home. In order to expand our own capacity, we added a tent and then a second tent so we could rapidly see these patients and get them in and out. There was a very interesting cultural flip that happened in our institution. The institution suddenly decided that boarding cannot exist in the emergency department because it would be too dangerous. So now, rather than us being the infinite accordion, the hospital had to become the accordion. And I have to commend our CEO, our chief medical officer, and the whole C-suite as to what they did. We added, we went from 50 ICU beds to 160 ICU beds. We added another couple of hundred inpatient beds. But any day when I would come into work and we were boarding a couple of patients, boom, they opened up a new 10-bedded unit or 20-bedded unit. It was the most amazing thing that I ever saw. But it was an interesting cultural flip that boarding cannot happen. And we've tried to hold on to that culture since then with a fair degree of success. Wow. Hallie, do you, do you want to offer a perspective of what it was like in D.C.? Because I, we didn't have the same, um, our curve didn't look the same as New York. And I think we had more time to prepare yeah, I mean, I think that everybody in the country, it was kind of frenzied in the beginning. Um, and it was a lot of the same thing of us trying to figure out how we can stop boarding. Um, we did hold our elective volume uh, for a few months and we had zero boarding. Um, it was very interesting. And we actually, a lot of like quality metrics went down and things like that. Um, th those things did improve. It wasn't necessarily as significant in New York, but it was still very stressful and very frenzied in the beginning. But I was really proud of our colleagues and how they handled it and really came together to develop kind of a system. For me, the most significant thing was that we, we stopped elective volume in order to stop boarding. And there was really a significant impact on quality care. 
I want to get to Eugene's perspective on uh, the pandemic, but first I'll just add kind of a sidebar around um, one thing that was interesting to me was, you know, it was really, we, we took away uh, elective cases and also volumes dropped, right? Volumes dropped significantly into the emergency department. And so what we saw was the minimum, we had space in the hospital at, at times we had space in the emergency department, sort of the minimum time it would take to get a patient admitted to the hospital was still pretty significant, which highlights the process time that it takes, which is something I've been interested in is like, how do you shorten that process time? And I think our lowest process time was still around uh, three hours. So even when you have capacity, it's actually not a capacity issue. It's a, it's a process waste issue and figuring out how to lean that out. Eugene, can you give us some comments when you look nationwide and from your perspective at the Institute for Healthcare Optimization, what happened with capacity in hospitals in this country over the last year? Uh, first of all, I would like to say when we say that we have insufficient capacity, the hospitals uh, were and still are trying to build many beds. Just for the information, the capital cost of the bed on the East Coast is about a million and a half. Just regular med surge beds. I'm not talking about even ICU. The capital cost of the bed, the med surge bed on the West Coast is about three million because they have to do some, something you know, to protect against the earthquake. So we are talking about huge amount of money. And yet we were continuing this binge building nonstop. So what happened during uh, the beginning of the pandemic? I should distinguish different stages of the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, all of a sudden we found the decision, let's cancel all elective surgeries. Sounds like a good idea and let's build more beds. So first of all, you cannot indefinitely build those beds because they cost a lot. An operational cost is in excess of half a million a year. I, I believe I'm conservative. So we were canceling all elective surgeries, but similarly to the idea of overcrowding and the fact of elective surgeries and the idea of overcrowding, we have not fully appreciated the consequence of this cancellation. The consequence of this cancellation is that according to American uh, Hospital Association, the hospitals last year lost $350 billion because elective surgery is the main blood supply to the hospital finances. So what happened when we cancel elective surgeries? All of a sudden we recognize that we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough money. So what do we do when we don't have enough money? We fire the staff. So we fire the staff, even we don't have, we have beds, we don't have staff to stop those beds. That's a kind of catch 22. We didn't look through the whole consequences of our actions. And so that is not a solution, obviously, to cancel. I mean, when there is no PPE, I would agree that we have to cancel all elective surgery simply that because there is no choice. But if there is a sufficient amount of PPE, what should we do? And there is a very good case studies that you can find uh, on CBC. That's a hospital, that's a leading Canadian hospital and number four in the world according to the Newsweek ranking, that's Toronto General. Their surgeons initiated this project of smoothing elective surgery, making sure that we are performing similar number of surgeries uh, every day. They did it uh, prior to the pandemic. The project, uh, actually, they finished the project at the end of March of the last year, right before the pandemic. 
and they were the best in Ontario, best prepared for the pandemic. Yeah, Eugene, I just want to play back a couple of things you said there that um, are really, really striking. So tell me if this is what you said. We actually don't necessarily need more physical beds. What we need is to use the existing beds we have more efficiently and that you see examples of places that have served their uh, urgent patients, their emergency department patients, and fit in all their elective surgeries just by rethinking their systems. Is that, is that fair? No, I wouldn't say that at the beginning of the pandemic, they fit all their elective surgeries. In fact, there was a shortage of PPE. They, had to, they were forced to, to cancel elective surgeries. What I'm saying that they were able to restart their elective surgeries uh, much sooner than any other hospital that I know. Mm -hmm. And that is so important because of what you highlighted in terms of revenue. And I know all, all health systems right now are hurting because revenues are down. And Peter, you went and jump in because I know you, you had a, a comment. I think to appreciate the scale of what we're talking about is important. Because when you talk about this, people don't appreciate, is this going to make a little difference or is it going to make a big difference? So I'd like to give two examples. One is from a colleague who uh, had a focused effort on weekend discharges. Now, this was in a hospital where the emergency department was averaging 30 boarders a day. All he did was focus on weekend discharges. And as a result of increasing the number of weekend discharges and increasing capacity, two things happened. They eliminated boarding in the emergency department and they closed a 30-bed unit because they didn't need the beds. Here's numbers from, from one hospital. It's a 600-bed hospital with an average of 30 boarders. If you took their numbers and you, had, you did not change the length of stay, which you would change if you, if you did this, but let's assume that's a constant length of stay, 600 beds, 30 boarders. If you smoothed across five days a week, so you had the same number of admissions every day, you would need 568 beds to take care of what currently was being taken care of by 600 beds plus 30 borders in the emergency department. If you smoothed it across seven days a week so that a Sunday was no different than a Wednesday, for the same volume of patients with the same length of stay, you would need 498 beds. So a 600-bed hospital with 30 borders, if it was smoothed across seven days, you would need 498 beds. So this is, I think this sort of helps give perspective on the degree to which this is important, the magnitude of it. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for, for putting real numbers around that. Um, you know, we've been talking about this concept of surgical smoothing and some of our listeners may not be as familiar with what, what does that even mean? Eugene, you mind giving just a, a high level? And then, you know, Hallie, I know you've implemented this um, in your career. So we'd love to hear about that experience as well. We should perform a similar number of surgeries every day. And that is absolutely possible. What is important to mention that it does not mean to ask every surgeon to perform similar number of surgeries every day. That would be stupid to ask and not realistic. What we are talking about is, for example, if uh, orthopedic surgery or whatever, they send the, patient, <coughs> the patients to the particular ward. And there are five, whatever number of surgeons who do that. What we are asking that cumulatively, they should send similar number of patients to that ward every day. So if one of them has a peak, 
in the case volume, then another one should have a value. I just wanted to add to what the, Eugene is saying is that you're smoothing not just the number of surgical cases, but you're smoothing to the need for inpatient beds. So there's the same need every day. And more importantly, you're smoothing to ICU need because a lot of these elective uh, surgeries, you know, they're going to need an ICU bed. So don't bring them all in on Monday, spread them out across the week. So it's smoothing both to ICU and inpatient as well as the overall surgery. ICU is, you know, some of the strongest data for harm on boarding, right? We know every hour you spend in the emergency department as a critical care patient, not in a critical care unit, your mortality goes up. And so those are some of the patients that are taking one-to-one -one nursing, taking a lot of emergency department resources. And if you've got a big bolus of ICU patients on one given day, um, you're, that's the situation you're going to be in. Hallie, do you want to share a little bit about um, what you've seen um, when you've worked on this kind of project before? I feel really lucky because the organization where I did get to work on a, a smoothing or a smoothing project, they did have a lot of resources and I would probably consider them a seven day a week hospital. When it comes to OR smoothing, like it's not just as simple as like looking at the elective volume. I'm sure Eugene and Peter would, would agree. Um, you have to look at the resources and how you can smooth out the resources. You have to look at how you're queuing uh, procedures um, so that it's spread out throughout the day. And you have to look at that not just with um, elective volume, but also your emergency volume, as well as um, for us, I'm, I'm also the manager of the transfer center at GW. Um, and, and elective variability definitely affects our ability to accept transfers also. So you kind of have to look at that as well. Like you're, we have that agreement with our community that we're going to accept their patients as transfers. So we have to look at that variability in the modeling. And that can be very difficult if you don't already have that set in place. So they're smoothing across the week. But if we think about also weekends and within the day smoothing, in order to make that happen, you had to have echo and physical therapy and the MRIs and all this sort of stuff on weekends. But since you were doing the total same volume of work, for the most part, you were just shifting resources from the weekday to the weekend with one exception. And this was uh, uh, their experience at this institution. They had to add physical therapy to weekends. One of the consequences of adding physical therapy on weekend is that the number of patients that were discharged to subacute rehab decreased by 25%. So that to me is a major win. Also, we talk about smoothing across the week and early discharge is important. NYU had this whole early discharge program and why did they have it? They had it because their chief financial officer found that if somebody was admitted to the floor afternoon, their average length of stay was a half a day longer. And this was at a cost of millions and millions of dollars to NYU. So they had this early discharge program where they wanted to get, I think their target was 30% out by noon. They got to 42% out by noon with a profound uh, increase in capacity. But there's also cues within the day. If physical therapy and echo and and uh, social work and case management all go home at four o'clock in the afternoon, then there is a queue the next morning. Who's going to have a PT consult first so you can do the discharge planning and get them out of there? So part of the effort of getting people out early drove this other stuff of having people later in the evening so that you didn't accumulate this huge workload the next morning and you could actually successfully get people out. The last thing that happens also when you get people out early in the day, 
they get home and there's a problem. Their home care didn't show up. Their, their prescriptions, uh, there was a problem with it. Now they can call the person that discharge it because it's still the daytime. They can fix those problems. So it's a huge benefit to the hospital financially. It's a benefit to the unit because they're getting people out before they get new patients in. And they don't, and they can get them in instead of having to go down to the emergency department and take care of them. And then the patient benefits because they can communicate if they're having a problem with the with the person that knows them. So if it's of benefit to the patient, if it's of benefit to the doctor, if it's of benefit to the nurse, it's uh, it's of benefit to the financial health of the institution. Then why on earth aren't we doing it? And I think there are reasons. If you go back to the 1960s and look at hospitals, they were at medium occupancy. The average length of stay was about 12 or 13 days. Most of the admissions were elective and it made perfect sense to run a hospital nine to five Monday through Friday with a skeleton crew on evenings, nights and weekends. So that's the culture of the hospital moving forward. And that hospital culture was like the frog in the water where the, where the temperatures turned up very slowly until it boils. So at no point along here was there was this cataclysm of, oh my God, we need to, uh, this is a problem. We have a solution, we need to implement it. So the problem grew, crowding grew. Crowding was horrible in the emergency department. Capacity was terrible in the hospital. Everybody knew this, but they knew a few things about it. One, it was the fault of unnecessary visits to the emergency department. It was a growing sick and elderly population. And the, there was a studied sense of helplessness. There's really nothing we can do about this uh, except build more beds, more hospitals, expand, expand, expand. So th this was sort of the, the culture is this is the way things are. I don't think surgeons got together on, on a given day and said, let's do everything on a Monday. That's just been the culture for the last 30 or 40 years. And without acknowledging and understanding that that's the cultural barriers that you have to overcome, I think it makes it extremely difficult. One of my roles in terms of trying to address boarding in the emergency department was to implement the full capacity protocol, where we move people out of our hallways to hallways elsewhere. There wasn't a medical barrier to this. It was a cultural barrier. Oh, we can't do this. And one of the cultural barriers to emergency department crowding, which I feel like I played a part in, was having the hospital industry reach a tipping point where they understood and embraced the notion that the problem really was admitted patients boarding in the emergency department. It wasn't because we were doing a lousy job. It was because there was no exit door to get the, get the patients out. And now I think for all of you that are involved with patient flow activities, there's no dispute about that anymore. But please believe me, that, what, that required a cultural change to shift where the fix was needed from the emergency department to the inpatient unit. If there is any silver line during this pandemic is the fact that we can use this as a leverage to change the culture. There is a saying that uh, no disaster should be gone unutilized. So maybe we should utilize this disaster to change the hospital culture. That's what Peter was saying. That's fantastic. And I, I really love the, the level of detail we're getting to in terms of what has to happen culturally and in terms of resourcing. 
what is your kind of hope for the next six to 12 months as we, you know, are in the era of hope again with vaccines and what do you imagine um, will happen with the surgical backlog and with hospital flow and boarding and crowding? I think what will happen as we return to normal is that most people will revert to what they were always doing and there will not be a change. And I think the way to make these sort of changes is uh, use Malcolm Gladwell's idea of the tipping point, is you need to convince one person and another and grow your alliances so that you eventually within your institution reach a tipping point. And it may come from multiple sources. It may come from people within surgery that are very frustrated by their problems with scheduling patients and this sort of thing. It may come from your chief financial officer that says, you know what, I would like to make an extra 150, 200 million dollars this year at no cost. So there's multiple alliances uh, to build on this. But I think it has uh, strategically, it has to be perceived as the hospital is championing it, not the emergency department. It's, it's not emergency department versus the inpatient unit. This is really of interest to the hospital on, on behalf of their financial health, on behalf of the sanity of their staff, the safety of their patients. And ultimately where this has happened, the happiness of the surgeons. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm thinking out loud. I'm not sure I'm right, but uh, I think that if that most of the people, most of the decision makers in the country, and this is where I agree with Peter, I think that that, that is life, you know, uh, and we have to, to, to live like we used to. What is important for them to listen to the, the, this podcast, to understand that there is a solution, that this solution benefited every single group of patients. So how to do that? Maybe we should address different associations. People should know that there is a solution and the solution is within their reach. I don't think that there should be a pretense that the solution is easy, that you can just snap your fingers. If I wanna ask a surgeon to operate on a Thursday instead of a Tuesday, they may have to rearrange their office schedule. So there's a lot of downstream consequences of doing this sort of stuff. It's, it's not necessarily easy. So in order to change, there's this a hump of pain that you have to go through in order to get to the point where you're now in the valley of pleasure. Things are much, much better for you. But it's, it is, I don't think anybody should pretend that, oh, you should just snap your fingers and it's just because you're mule-headed that you don't want to do this. There, it is a challenge to make it happen. It has been done, actually, at several hospitals. So I think we should make sure that our discussion is moving from whether it is possible to how to do it. Uh, to me, when I've been asked whether it is possible, we, it has been done at several hospitals already, in the UK, in the Canada, in the US, multiple hospitals. So for me, the discussion of feasibility of doing that it's, uh, I tell people frequently that that reminds me of discussion whether the heavy plane could fly in the air. You don't discuss it anymore. You just look up and see them flying. So we, we have to move from discussing of whether we should do it to discussing how to do it. 
Yeah, I think for me too, just to echo what you guys said, one of the most important things I think is just to get it out there. And that's one of the most, the reasons why I was really excited to be a part of this podcast and speak, you know, with two patient flow legends, but people just don't know about that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a nurse. I have a master's. I'm getting my doctorate and we don't really discuss this in nursing school. Nurses don't know what this is about. I think in general, this, I don't know if this is something that is necessarily in, um, you know, medical school either. It's, I kind of fell into patient flow, um, because of a mentor at my previous organization. So people just don't know about it. I mean, I have nurses, um, who work for me in our transfer center who manage all of the patient flow. Um, they also manage the transfer center patients and it's, their job is very difficult because of that. But I also call them all unicorns. That's kind of become our department's mascot, if you will, because you just don't find people that know a lot about this. So I think it's so important to get out there and talk about this and talk about the benefits to operationalizing patient flow so it can be effective in delivering care. I do think that executive support is a, is a huge, it's a huge thing. You, you have to have executive support. So whatever you need to do to get the executive support. And then I discussed this before, but whatever you need to do to operationalize that. It took me a while to come to terms with the fact that this is going to be a very slow process um, for some organizations. You and I have both been involved over the years in a lot of patient flow efforts. And in order to be successful, you really have to get down in the weeds. You have to chop down a lot of trees. You have to focus on a lot of detail. But my interest in this came really from the forest, and which is why I've wanted to chop down the trees. And the forest is the systems issues kill people. They kill people. And ultimately the purpose of smoothing, the purpose of dealing with crowding, of early discharge, of all this sort of stuff. It's great for the surgeons, it's great for the financial health, it's great for the staff. But we have this not, not unsurprising finding out there that if you're having an emergency and your care is delayed, you don't do as well. And if you need inpatient expertise and inpatient services and you can't get them, you don't do as well. So the forest here really, and the straw that stirs the drink is the patient's life. And that's why we have to get into this and do something about it. I can't imagine a better note on which to end. Thank you to the three of you for sharing your expertise. It's been a lot of fun. And I thank you for all the ways in which you're transforming systems to reduce suffering and save lives. As an addendum, I wanna let our listeners know that Dr. Lipbeck has recently published an article in the Annals of Surgery on the topic of surgical smoothing as a solution to our COVID-19 capacity crunch. You can find that linked on the Urgent Matters Twitter, Facebook, or Medium webpage.